And I've always been someone who, when I'm backed into a corner, I'm more likely to be able to perform better. That's the voice of Tyler Shaheen, owner of the Southern Craftsman. And I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jobber. Jobber is software to organize and manage your business. From quoting a project to getting paid to everything in between, Jobber software brings everything together to make projects easy to manage and customers happy, giving you more time in your day and getting you paid faster. Go to getjobber.com Ethan or check out the link in the show notes for a free 14-day trial of Jobber. And if you try it now, you get 20% off your first six months when you sign up. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Tyler Shaheen, owner of the Southern Indiana-based furniture company, The Southern Craftsman. From borrowed tools and DIY plans off the internet to a full production shop, a collection of his own furniture and employees, it is safe to say that Tyler has fully committed to his dream of owning his own furniture business. But it wasn't easy, and Tyler's struggles weren't only about building furniture or getting clients. He also struggled with the decision to go full-time, if it was right for him and his family. But once he made that jump, he never looked back. Follow along as we talk about building a business from the ground up, the balance of outsourcing work, ballpark pricing versus final pricing, and much more. So let's get into Tyler's story and hear about how he built his business in his own words. I was living in Las Vegas with a host family, and I was working in a church out there for a residency, which is uh, kind of what I had gone to college for, was to work in the church, do outreach, different things along those lines. And um, in the host family, or in the house of the host family I was living in, they didn't have any nightstands in the bedroom I was staying in. So I was given some extra free lumber from a project I'd been a part of in the church and thought, I'm just gonna build some crates so I can kind of use them as nightstands. That seems pretty easy. So I threw some stuff together um, with some tools that I had borrowed in um, somebody else's garage and just used those for my first few pieces of furniture. Um, and then a few, I would say, Six or eight months after I had built those first few pieces, my wife and I were getting getting ready to get married and move into an apartment. So we needed some furniture and we were super broke at the time. So I thought I'm gonna, you know, borrow borrow these tools again and try and build some furniture with some plans that I'd found online. And like a lot of people, I jumped on Anna White's website and found some farmhouse plans and threw a dining table together and a coffee table and um, a bed frame, a couple things like that. They really loved the process and building things. And um, so from that point on that Christmas, I asked for some tools. I want to build some more furniture and I had some friends and family see the pieces that I made and asked if I could build some things for them too. So it slowly, slowly started turning into a little bit of a business. And I thought, oh, if I can build this table for somebody or build this nightstand for somebody, I can use that money to buy more tools. And it, at that point, was kind of just a pursuit to get more stuff and more tools to keep building and making the making that job easier. So that kind of just kept snowballing, and I got super lucky and fortunate. There was a guy in Vegas, um, this guy, this guy Ron, who was a full-time furniture maker, retired, and gave me a key to his shop. And he had a huge, full, I mean, huge, amazing shop. 
Um, and he was nice enough to just give me a key and say, come work whenever you want. And uh, just if you break anything, you know, fix it or <laughs> replace it or whatever that looks like. And um, I'll help you out whenever I'm here too. So I spent a bunch of time in his shop, tried to learn from him quite a bit. Um, anytime that he was around, they just kept building furniture pieces for different friends and different family and buying more tools and trying to build up my own my own portfolio of pieces and my own garage full of tools. So uh, we were living in an apartment though. So I, obviously I couldn't build stuff in the apartment, but I didn't want to keep invading this guy's space. So the extra, after a while, the extra money I made from building furniture was enough for us to move out of our apartment and into a house so I could have my own shop in the garage. And I would say at that point is kind of when it started feeling like a business when there was this little bit of income that I was making that we needed to be able to pay our rent. And I've always been someone who, when I'm backed into a corner, I'm more likely to be able to perform better. So with that pressure on, I was always you know, trying to figure out new ways to bring in business and talking about it more and taking more risks and things like that. So yeah. Where did the name come from? Because when you pick a name for your business, it becomes a real thing. You can be doing work for friends and family. You can be doing work here and there and sort of feel like it's a part-time thing. But once you pick a name, once you you put your stamp on what you're doing and saying, this is a real thing, this thing has a name, this is out in the world, it becomes a reality. It becomes a real furniture company. And there's a lot of lines in the sand that people draw throughout their furniture company's journey. But when you pick that first name, it's saying, I'm planting a flag here. I'm making this a reality. It didn't start as the Southern Craftsman. I'd actually started when I'd pretty much sold that first piece of furniture. And I thought, I want to make a little bit of extra money doing this. I need to come up with a name. So I named the business Creative Interiors LV, which I had always hated from the very beginning. So um, I knew from that point, I thought, I just need to have a name. Need to brand things just so it seems legit and then i'll change it later if i decide to do that i don't know there's not really a specific sequence of events other than i knew in the back of my mind creative interiors lv would never be the full-time name because i didn't want to be confined to lv for las vegas because i had a feeling we would live there forever so i was just kind of sitting there one day and all of a sudden i thought the southern craftsman i'm from kentucky i'm from the south i live in southern nevada so maybe this can work and I thought about it for a little bit, threw a little logo together, and it has not changed since then. So I just kind of stuck with it. And I've always been a fan of the name, uh, but I did intentionally make the name the Southern Craftsmen as plural because I thought I want this to be bigger than just me someday. That was one of the reasons and the kind of, you know, like you said, the flag in the ground was I'll just do the Southern Craftsmen and make my business seem bigger than it actually is. But here we are now, there's multiple people. So I guess I, kind of fulfilled that prophecy. There you go. You set goals and then you work towards making them happen because that's growth. That's what you're aiming for. You're aiming to change from that original garage that you were working into where you are now. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk a little bit about your growth. And you said you're somebody who when there's adversity, when your back's up against the wall, you perform better in a furniture business. That happens a lot. There's a lot of 
issues that arise in young businesses and in businesses that have been going on for a long time. So what's some of the things that stick out for you in your journey so far from when you were just starting out to where you are now? Yeah, it's always been kind of, I mean, it's always been a little bit crazy um, and it's always remained at least slightly overwhelming as far as the amount of work I'm trying to get done for different clients. And I've been really fortunate in that sense where I feel like I've mostly always had orders at least to be able to keep me busy with the time I was able to put into the business. So back when I was in Vegas, I was still working in the church full time and my wife was doing the same, but we just weren't making a lot. So what I had done was keep the business going on the side and it got to a point where it kept growing and growing. Eventually I had enough work to where I could, you know, I, we were getting ready to move and things were changing and I'd left my job in the church for a few months um, and started working for another company out there building trade show exhibits, which was a really interesting job. Didn't love it, but I thought if I can do this to pay the bills and keep growing the woodworking business on the side to eventually be able to quit that job too and just build furniture full-time, that would be amazing. So that's kind of what I did. Quit that job after a few months, just ran the business full-time, and then we moved to Southern Indiana. And I had to pretty much start all over. So when we had moved out to New Albany, um, I had taken a full-time job at a nonprofit, which is really what my degree had prepped me to do, and just kept building furniture on the side and trying to rebuild a client base. And I hadn't planned to go full-time with building furniture. Once we'd moved back here, I thought, I'll stay in ministry. I'll stay working in this nonprofit. It's an incredible nonprofit, incredible outreach to the community and help tons and tons of people. So I was really grateful to be a part of that. But after about two years of building up a new client base and building up my shop and um, kind of starting fresh when we had moved out here, it became too much. Building furniture and running the business as just a side hustle had turned into a second full-time job. So I'd really, really wrestled with, do I want to stay in this job in the nonprofit because it's super life-giving and fun and enjoyable, um, but so is woodworking. And my wife and I had started trying to have a family. So I thought, I can't do two full-time jobs if I also want to be a dad. So I have to give something up here. And I had to really do a lot of soul searching and evaluating of, am I able to be fulfilled personally? if I'm just doing woodworking full-time. And I wrestled with that for probably four months while I was pretty much doing two full-time jobs um, and got to the point of, I think I can do this woodworking thing. I think I can take a good go at it and we'll be able to survive financially. I'll be able to continue doing the things I enjoy the most about serving with local nonprofits and helping out my local church and things like that. So I think I can do this full-time woodworking thing and if I need to do it I need to get out of the house I can't work out of the garage this needs to be a real business so it was it was just crazy up until that point that juxtaposition that a lot of people have experienced a lot of people either went through it or are still going through it of having a full-time job and also a full-time furniture business because you're running both at the same time and you think that it's great because you're getting a paycheck and you're also building furniture and yes it is it's a great safety net it's a great parachute to have in case 
you aren't sure about going full-time furniture, but at the same time, it's so incredibly stressful because you're actually doing two full-time jobs and it just burns people out before it even starts. They think, how could I even do this? Because it's so incredibly stressful, but you forget that you are having two full-time jobs at the same time. So that definitely is a situation where your back is up against the wall and you need to make a decision one way or the other because you can't give 100% to both things. Yeah, it's exhausting to try and do both. And I would, you know, work from 8 to 4.30 at my job and I'd come home and be out in the shop by five o'clock working until 10 or 11 every single night. And on the weekends, I'd be out there from, you know, like 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. working. And it did get to a point where it was exhausting and I wasn't hanging out with my friends and I was constantly just thinking about the business or I'd be at my other job distracted all the time trying to think about the business. And I thought, this is my sign that I probably want to be doing woodworking more than I want to be here. So I got to figure out this transition and start taking steps towards making that happen. Um, and also try and leave the nonprofit in a good place because I, I had a, what I would like to think is an important job there. Um, I was kind of the second in charge and was doing a lot and I knew my job was hard to fill. So I didn't want, I wanted to give them a couple months lead time. So in that process, so I, that's something I'd recommend people do if you can to be, a, if you're going to transition out, try and leave your company in a good place. And it's also important not to burn those bridges because one, they might help you bring business down the road. And then two, if for some reason things fail, you want to keep a good referral. So hoping that won't happen, but, um, you know, bad circumstances do come along for some people. So yeah, try not to burn bridges. That is the truth. Burning bridges in any situation is not a great position to put yourself in because even though you might be starting out on your own, connections are still incredibly important. You don't know where your next job is going to come from. And maybe you leave a job that has nothing to do with furniture, but maybe those people are rooting for you so much that they become your first client. So yes, I agree. Don't burn your bridges when you are leaving. Now, you keep talking about being incredibly lucky having orders coming in where you had orders in Las Vegas and you moved and you still had orders where you ended up and you had enough orders to go full time. And Yes, it's lucky, but it also is the way you position yourself in the industry. It's also the way you put your name out there. It's also the way you conduct yourself as a business to get those orders. Luck has something to do with getting the initial orders, but it goes beyond luck when you need to fulfill those orders and when you need to do them in such a quality way that more people come your way. So I really like the way you set up your website and your website being the front facing part of your business. The way you have it is you say you're a custom shop and you also show that you have a collection of furniture, but the collection of furniture is, and correct me if I'm wrong, taken from custom work that you've done before that are standalone pieces 
But now instead of just saying, this is an entire list of all the custom stuff I could do, you say, this is a piece of furniture that you could order. It was custom, but now it's a part of the collection. I can customize it, but this is something that you can order. Because when people think of custom work, the sky's the limit. But if you can say, here are pieces that I've made that you can either order or something similar, it really narrows people's scope down and gives them a better sense of what they can buy from you. Yeah, some people are so indecisive that they just need a little bit of guidance. And a lot of times I can tell, typically during that first client meeting when I meet with somebody, how much they've made up in their mind or how how much they care about the design process or do they just want something that's handmade that they know is good quality and that they're they know they won't have to worry about you know surviving the test of time in 30 or 40 years or whatever so sometimes you know having those pre-designed pieces on my site which as you'd said are custom pieces that i've done previously for clients is helpful in that decision making process so i can keep orders coming in and I had to make the decision, do I want to only do custom furniture or do I want to try and do more production style furniture and build a big business or a bigger business, I guess, and um, focus on trying to, you know, crank out 30, you know, maybe 30, 40 pieces a month someday, opposed to two pieces a month um, that are completely custom. And after a lot of thinking, I mean, I decided I enjoy the business side of it, but I also like building furniture, which I know is not the case for everybody. Most furniture makers, I feel like just enjoy building furniture and they don't want to run the business side of it, but I love the business side of it. So I was able to learn that. And I thought, you know, if I want to make more pieces or have employees and just do a higher volume of pieces, then I need to have some pre-made designs on my website so that it, it's really, really easy for people to do business with me. And I know there, there will always be those super complicated clients and that's where custom work comes in. But to be able to have a little bit of somewhat passive income that I can rely on um, where a client's going to jump on my website and say, you know, I'll have two or three clients a month say, hey, build me the same piece that you did right here and just make it out of this wood opposed to that wood. That's an easy sell for me. And I've got an employee now who helps me with that um, and can help me with, you know, the parts of the process that aren't that don't require multiple years of experience to be able to do as long as it's not compromising on quality which is important to me so yeah it's it's been a lot of adjustments and i'm still trying to work towards having it set up as more of an e-commerce platform to where people can click and purchase furniture and that's somewhat in the works for the last couple months but that's the direction i want to be able to go with my site well it's a very smart idea because how many people out there have built pieces of custom work and it's on their website as custom we can build anything we can build you any type of dining room table here are a few examples but we can do other stuff as well or how many times has a client reached out and said i've been scrolling through your social media and four years ago you made a custom table for somebody? Do you have more information on that? You have the pictures, you have the quote unquote inventory already because you've built that, you know how to build that. You don't have to reinvent that project every time. Yes, it was custom to begin with, 
but now it's not because you've built it. So put it up there like you did and show this is a table you can buy. This is a coffee table you can buy. This is an accent piece that you can buy. If you want to build this, great. If not, we also do custom stuff, but here's a starting point. And you don't have to search through all my other stuff. It's right here, front and center. So it's a very smart business decision to make for getting clients to want to purchase your furniture. Yeah, it's it's definitely been helpful um, taking the time to keep my website updated and outline all the pieces that I have made um, and obviously taking the time to have good pictures of it. So that has been really, really important and something that um, we've got a guy who helps with photo and video and social media who comes in at least once a week and making sure that we can have good quality pictures of each piece so that the website looks more uniform and um, social media stuff can look better and that it can highlight the quality of the work that I'm trying to produce has been has been good. So obviously it takes time and it's an investment and it's challenging. And sometimes a lot of furniture makers aren't able to do that on their own. So I think it's just so, so important to have good pictures of the work that you've done and something that's eye-catching, something that's interesting. And it people will be able to tell from those pictures what you're able to do. And the way you show yourself on your website or on social media is hugely important, at least for me, because that's where I get uh, a good amount of my business. I know if I hear about a business, first thing I'm going to do before I you know, send them any money is check out their website, um, check out their social media pages and kind of vet them based on what I'm able to see on their website. And clients will do the same thing to you whenever they're trying to decide if they're going to trust you with $3,000 for a dining table or $1,000 for a coffee table. They want to know that what they're about to receive and what they're spending their hard-earned money for is good quality. And the way you showcase that is on your website because most of us don't have an inventory and you can't have people come to your shop all the time. So yeah, taking time to do that and do it, do it right will definitely help your business in the long term. Furniture makers can't do it all. And they shouldn't have to. When you start your business, you think, I need to do everything. I need to be the builder. I need to be the front office. I need to be the back end shipping. I need to be the photographer. I need to be the social media. I need to do the taxes. I need to do the accounting. And yes, you may have to do that depending on how you set up your business. And I'm not saying that you can outsource this stuff and it will be for free. There are fees associated with outsourcing things. But if you've made that jump into being a full-time furniture company, you have to think, what is my time worth? Is my time worth more building things in the shop to send out to clients? Or is my time better spent learning how to become a professional photographer, learning how to do all my books, learning how to do this, spending all my time doing that when I'm not doing what is the core of the business, which is building. And you can outsource a lot of that stuff to people whose job it is and can do it a lot faster. And if you count the hours and the time you'd spend doing it a lot cheaper than probably you would be able to do it on that learning curve. So getting somebody to take a professional picture of your work, doing other things that outsource things 
is a great way to go if those aren't things that you know in the beginning. Yeah, and that's something that I, you know, I listen to a ton of podcasts when I'm in the shop and I listen to a lot of business podcasts or marketing podcasts and have some friends who are business owners. And that's one of the things they always encourage me to do was invest back in your business and outsource things that you're not great at. And uh, there's been a few things I've started hiring people for this year, just because exactly like you said, I mean, the amount of, I know what my time is worth in the shop when I'm, when I've got my hands on some furniture um, and building things. And I know what I can pay people to do certain things that I'm not the best at. So like you said, hiring a CPA, um, where it is something I could do that work myself, but my time is better spent in the shop or trying to take pictures of the furniture and get everything set up right. I don't have as good of a camera as what my photographer has, and I'm not going, and even if I did, I can do what he can do with it. I don't know how to work it that well. I don't know how to get the angles right, um, things like that. So yeah, I, I had to outsource that and having, having help with social media. So a lot of it this past year has been what are things that are overwhelming me and taking time away from my family that I can outsource to somebody else so that I can focus on what I know I'm uniquely wired and uniquely good at. Um, so it's been, it's, it is super challenging when I look at the amount of, you know, money I've paid to different people throughout the year for different services. It's always a little surprising and you're thinking, man, I could have done that, but it freed me up to do all these other things. It allowed me to be at home more. I, I didn't have to worry about trying to take care of my books or trying to constantly put videos together for social media or edit pictures or things like that. So it's, it's interesting starting to outsource those things, but once you get those things off your plate and if you're able to financially be able to do that, it's an investment up front. but you will see the return on it probably pretty shortly after. And there's a learning curve up front handing things off and it's a bit tricky, but you know, investing back in the business in that way and through other people, you know, and trust who are going to do a good job, it will help you grow. Um, it'll help you reach your goals and you'll just enjoy everything a lot more. You don't have to read all tax codes and do this and that you need to hand that to somebody who specializes it. And you don't have to take the time to research it. So yeah, it's, it's a good thing to do. And if you've been considering hiring for certain parts of your business, you should just do it. I mean, find somebody, there's places to be able to find help, ask friends for referrals, whatever you got to do. Um, it'll help you grow and you only have so much time. And I don't think you'll be able to grow. Like you, you will plateau for sure. If you're trying to do every single little thing on your own. Not only does it save you time, they can also do it better than you can because that's their job. Just like people who are buying your furniture, I'm sure in their mind, they're thinking, oh, I could probably learn how to build a piece of furniture, but it would be a lot easier and cheaper and faster if I just had somebody else build it for me. And that's how you're getting your business. That's how people are thinking about why to buy furniture from you. So why wouldn't you do that the other way? Why wouldn't you say, I don't know how to do my taxes. I don't know how to take pictures. I don't know how to do this. There's somebody whose job it is. Let's go to that person and have them do it. It's the idea of going from being a furniture builder to a furniture business. It's taking that next step. It's being able to 
grow your business outside of yourself if that's the type of growth that you are looking for. Yeah, 100%. And some people want to just do all those things on their own and they enjoy it. And that's cool. But if you want to scale, um, if you hate those things, try and find somebody else to take them off your plate. You'll be happier. Even if, you know, it cuts into your, the amount you're going to make um, up front. Like I said, it's an investment. It's a long-term investment to be able to outsource those things. So you might not experience that return of investment right away. Uh, but after that person hits their groove, if you're, if you're hiring somebody to do something, um, once you guys are working really well together, you'll really be able to sit back and think, man, I couldn't imagine having to do those things again. Like the guy who helps me with social media and video and photo, you know, he has to take a week off or something. I'm sitting there posting and I'm thinking, I hate this. And it makes me realize how grateful I am to have help for certain things. Or if I have to jump on QuickBooks or something and work on my taxes a little bit, I'm thinking, man, I hate this. I'm so glad I have somebody who took this off my plate. So it's always a good little reminder anytime I start to question if I made the right decision outsourcing something when I have to start doing it again. The last point, and we'll move on because I know we've spent a long time on this, but we spent a long time on it because I think it's important. And I think that saying it repetitively makes people stand up and listen and understand. The last thing to say on it is when you are outsourcing things, just remember it is your business. Don't lose track of it. Don't send everything off and lose track of it because it's still your business. You still need to know a little bit about it or else you're going to be in trouble when you don't understand what they're giving back to you. So enough of that and we can move on. Let's talk about your actual client interaction because that is where the money's coming from. That's where the money's coming from to hire these people to be able to outsource things. When somebody reaches out to you, what does that initial conversation look like? Typically, uh, if someone just shoots me a message and says, hey, I would love to have a dining table built, I'll say, you know, can you send me some inspiration pics? Um, I would love to get an idea of what you're looking for. And then I try to get them a ballpark price based on a small amount of information. And I know not everybody does that, but if I can give them a number, a rough number, my rough, I mean, really rough up front, that'll help me have an idea of, is this person serious about doing business with me or do they want a $500 pint dining table? Um, and if they want that dining table, I just tell them I'm not your guy. So if I send them, you know, I'll get some pictures, I'll say, Hey, you know, dining table like that, you might be looking at somewhere, you know, somewhere around three grand, something along those lines. Then if they say, Oh, that's way over budget. My budget's $1,200. I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know if it's going to work. Or if they say that sounds great. I say, okay, um, can you swing by my shop sometime? Let's set up a meeting sometime next week. And I'm really lucky. I have a really inviting shop space. Um, I'm in a nice building. It's, it's welcoming. I have a lot of people come in and I'll lay out a whole bunch of samples in front of them and try to have some pictures ready that I think might be good or along the lines of what they're looking for. Um, and I'll walk them through the process of picking out a wood type and a few other things as far as what they want for their table. I have some sizing guides for how many, you know, what size table you would want if you want to seat eight people, 10 people, 12, whatever. So we'll kind of go over those details with them in person. And usually my goal is to leave that meeting with enough information to where I can get them an exact price. 
Um, and once they leave, I'll say, okay, this is what we've decided. I have everything written down. Um, I say, I'll follow up with you probably tomorrow with a final price. Once I give you that final price, I'll send you an invoice for 50% of that cost. They'll pay the 50% and then I have them pay the other half whenever I deliver the table or they pick it up or whatever that looks like. So um, I try to give them a general idea of when I can have the table finished. I've got my list of orders written on my wall in my shop. So I can usually tell, hey, I'm you know two months out, three months out or whatever. And most of the time, clients are pretty understanding. If they if they want a piece of furniture from me, usually they're willing to wait three months or four months, which is always nice. And these days, any if they're going to try and order something from Crate and Barrel or Arhas, anyways, they're looking at six to twelve months waiting, anyways. So um, usually, it doesn't even matter as far as the timeline goes. But um, I try to keep them up to date. Whenever I go pick up the material, I'll shoot them a text and say like, "Hey, just pick up lumber for your dining table." It's going to sit in my shop. It'll have plenty of time to acclimate and I'll let you know when I get started on it. And I just try and keep them in the loop a little bit. If it's just a quick text or something that always helps them know, you know, still in process, they'll have an idea when they need to start getting ready to have the piece. If they need to do some final decorating in their house, they can prep for that. Um, anything along those lines, or if it's for somebody who's about to move into a new house, which is a lot of my clients and they need a dining table, for their, for their new home or their new construction, there's that's a chance for them to say, hey, the, everything got bumped back eight weeks. I don't need the table until March now or April, whatever. Um, and that gives me a chance to kind of move some of my orders around so I don't have a table sitting for too long. So I try to stay in good contact with my clients. I don't have an overwhelming number of clients right now to where I can't do that on my own. Uh, but if it ever comes to that, I'll probably hire an admin. That's hopefully something that'll happen down the road. That's a very hands-on approach in the beginning to to your client relationship. And that probably sets you up for a great rest of the relationship with that person because they know you personally. They have that interaction and they're able to feel comfortable with you. They feel like you take care of them so you're going to take care of their piece of furniture. And that client communication is so important throughout the process because, yes, it keeps the client happy and keeps the client understanding where their piece of furniture is. But it also, on the other end, helps you, like you said, adjust to things that might be changing on their end. If the space isn't ready, if they have issues that weren't in the initial conversation, then you can adjust on the fly. So that that conversation is always important. And that hands-on approach is great. Maybe people can't have their clients over to their shop or it's across the country and they can't have that personal relationship. But something like that, making the client feel welcome, making them feel like you're going to take care of them, is incredibly important when you're having interaction with a client. Yeah, and it's it's helpful too because sometimes they'll come in my shop if they're you know wanting to buy something like a full bedroom set and spend a ton of money, then they'll feel more comfortable seeing this is this guy's serious. He's full time with it. I think I can trust him. Or they'll see other pieces that I'm in the middle of working on and think, okay, this is good. I feel comfortable. 
Um, and a lot of time it can kind of help push them from, I'm considering buying the local to, okay, I met this guy, seems, seems trustworthy. I feel good about working with him. Now I want to buy a piece of furniture from him. Um, and before I had my shop, I would try to go meet with people at a coffee shop. I'd bring little tiny samples with me, like coaster size samples of wood types and um, talk them through the process, the decision-making process and guide them along that journey because there are a lot of details that you can get worked worked up in. So to try and narrow that down and guide people through that is really important and to not overwhelm them with too many decisions because sometimes they'll get tripped up. And I think I've lost clients because they realize they have too many decisions to make and they don't want that. They just want to buy a piece of furniture and have a dining table that's dark brown walnut and that's farmhouse or that's a mid-century piece and they don't care about all the other details. So you kind of get a feel for that after doing it for a while, I think, and feel like your clients and figure out how involved they want to be in that process with you or if they want to be totally hands-off. So and if they are hands-off, I would say type up a contract, have as many details outlined as you can, just so that if for some reason they come back in the end and say, hey, I was, you know, hands-off in this detail, but I still wanted it to be this way. So like, oh, well, it was in the contract and you still agreed to it. So we have to renegotiate a little bit and I can make that change. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a dance up front when you're doing custom work. And that's one of the other reasons why I'm trying to have some of those pre-made pieces that people can click and buy too. So I don't have to deal with all that back and forth. So I can just have more, some easy business pieces to come into because client work is super tricky sometimes. And like I said, it's a dance. You brought up contracts, which is definitely something that I want to get into, but I want to go back and talk about your pricing because you do pricing twice. You do a ballpark pricing and then you give your actual price for the piece. So let's talk about both of those where you're having that first conversation and then you have to come up with a ballpark price. And then once you've locked in all the details, you come up with the real price. For the ballpark pricing, having those pre-made pieces on my website as a reference is super helpful because I know what I charge for each table and that allows me to be able to use what I previously priced something at. If I was way off or I was pretty on point with how I feel like I priced that original piece, then I can just send them that park number. Um, and then whenever I'm meeting with them in person, let's say if they told me up front, hey, I want a lighter colored table and with this base style on this top, I'll shoot them a price for that info. But if they end up you know, saying I want walnut or white oak or something higher end, I'll tell them in that client meeting, okay, I just want to give you a heads up. It's probably going to be like another $750 if you want this material opposed to that. And we kind of feel that out during that in-person meeting. Or if it's not in person, over the phone, we can talk through those details. So, but for something that's completely custom, usually I try not, I mean, I try not to venture out a crazy amount with certain types of things I build. So like if I'm building a coffee table or an end table, most of the coffee tables I build are, you know, between $1,500 to $2,500. So I can know that if I'm somewhere in that range, that's probably about where I'll end up for exact pricing model or for a dining table between $2,500 and $4,000, something like that, that that's probably what it's going to be if they want straight boards. But if they want live edge, totally different, totally different thing. So a lot of times I feel like I can look at a table and get a pretty good idea of the amount of work it'll take to build it 
and think, okay, that's probably going to take me about a week to build. I know what my rate is for about a week of my time in the shop. So I'll estimate that. And then I'll ballpark like most dining tables are, you know, hundred to 150 board foot of lumber. If that's the case, then I can put those two numbers together pretty quickly and figure out an idea of what the table will be. So that's kind of how I ballpark price things for final pricing on things. I listened to one of the interviews you did with Coffee Custom Builds and he talked about where he has a list of the amount of time it takes him to do each step of the process for a certain build. So since then I've started a note in my phone. If I'm building a table, if I say, okay, an eight foot top by a three foot wide top, this is how much time it takes me to go get the lumber. This is how much time it takes me to mill the lumber. This is how much time it takes me to build that dial base or all those things. And I'll just add up those numbers over time. And most components of a dining table are pretty similar. Um, so I can kind of use past pieces as references and use that note for references on how long it'll take me to complete an entire project. But obviously there's always times when I'm way off. If I'm you know, venturing into a complicated mid-century piece of furniture opposed to a farmhouse dining table or like a more a more basic farmhouse dining table. I can estimate it'll probably take me, you know, 15 hours longer to build this piece or two days longer to build this piece opposed to something more simple. Sometimes I'm, I'm right on, sometimes I'm off, but I'll know better next time when I build something closer to that style, a better idea of how long it'll actually take me to build a piece. I have to say that it warms my heart a little bit hearing you say something that you listened to in a past episode has has helped you out because that is the whole reason I'm doing this show. So thank you for that. And I'm glad you learned a little something that you could work into your business and that has helped you. I think that it really comes down to that you know your business. You are taking into account every part of it that you can and turning that into your profit, turning that into your pricing, turning that into understanding how your business runs so it can run faster, smoother, and better. And end of the day, you're not leaking money because you know what you're doing when you're building. Yeah. And buying higher end equipment, like a bigger jointer, or I just bought a CNC or bigger bandsaws, whatever. Anything that increases the efficiency for what I'm doing in the shop usually means I'm probably going to bump up my shop hourly rate a little bit more. And I mean, I'm not trying to do a drastic increase when I buy higher end machinery, but I know that my time is a little bit more valuable because all of a sudden I can do something in an hour that used to take me two hours or something in three hours that used to take me seven hours. So as I would assess my business and figure out where do I feel like I'm wasting the most time, um, what machines can I upgrade to make my process more efficient? I need to do that and invest back in the business and buy that thing. I don't regret any of my purchases I've made this year and they've done nothing but help me make more money and pay themselves off quick and allow me to create better products for my clients too. So yeah, trying to figure out where, I mean, where to spend the money, where to spend the profits on different machines and tools so that my rate can be higher, my time can be more valuable. Um, means I'm able to keep my price fairly reasonable and also value myself more appropriately, depending on what I'm using to be able to make the products for clients. People think that 
you buy a more expensive tool, then you need to up your prices. But when you take a step back, it's not that you're trying to necessarily pay for that tool or you get a better shop. And it's not that your prices are reflecting trying to pay for that shop. It's your prices are reflecting that your business is in a different place. Your business can do better work because of this new tool or your business can run better and in turn give that efficiency and give that quality back to the clients that you are serving. And that's why the pricing is going up. And that's how you can justify charging more because your business is changing. Your business is worth more because the quality that you are able to give back is higher at that point when you reinvest back into your business or when you change things for the better in your business. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And having pieces where you remake something, like if you've got, you know, your main seller, which one of my main sellers for me is this pedestal dining table that I do, or like a trestle dining table. If I charge three grand for that table or 2,500 bucks for that table, and all of a sudden I buy a piece of machinery that allows me to save three hours in that time frame. I'm not going to lower the cost of the table. I might keep the table price the same and then I'll all of a sudden have three more hours back in my week to be able to use that towards building more pieces of furniture. That's something else that through the buying process of different machines, I keep in mind what's something that's going to help me the most with my flow and the type of furniture that I'm specializing in. And I need to put you know, put my money towards that because that's where I'll see the biggest rate of return. And you just keep upgrading over time and trying to figure out how you can be more efficient and continue to produce the same quality of work that you do or the or hopefully better quality work. And for me, a lot of that's in my milling process, which has been a big thing this year and just things along those lines or sending or whatever it is. So yeah, it's always, and, and that's just for me because I'm trying to do more production style furniture. I know there's a lot of you know, enthusiasts out there who just love hand tools and they just love specializing in, or they love certain parts of the process. And I would say, don't give those things away. If that's what you like about the craft, keep doing those things by hand. Or if you like cutting out tables, cutting out round tables with a router and a jig, keep doing that. Don't buy this. I mean, don't use your CNC for it. So that's something where even if I've got a better way to do it, if there's a part of the process, I just truly enjoy because of the craft of woodworking. I'll keep doing it the, you know, the slower way. And for me, that's where I keep in mind, this is for me was a hobby that turned into a business. And I just love the craft of woodworking and fine furniture and things like that. So I don't want to give up every piece of the process to a more efficient machine. That's for me, what helps keep me from burning out and something that helps just keep me excited about woodworking and trying new things and just more happy when I go home at the end of the day. And that's what's great about all different types of furniture companies where they're all building furniture, but they can be doing it in all different ways. You could have an entire hand tool shop, or you could have a shop that's all assembly line, that's all machines, that people don't even touch the product until it's being shipped out. And 
in between so many different types of furniture companies that people can have that, yes, you just have to find a style that works for you and upgrade at your own pace. Just because you see everybody else getting a certain tool or just because you see other companies with certain tools doesn't mean your shop necessarily needs to upgrade at that pace. It's whatever works for you, whatever works for your business, whatever works for you at that time. Absolutely. Now, let's get back to contracts because you said that you love the building side, but you also love the business side. And contracts is definitely something that falls along the business side. It's something that doesn't come naturally when you're just building things in a shop. It's something that you need to learn and perfect and get right because if you don't, you might not think on your first, second, 20th, 30th, 50th, 100th build that it's an issue, but eventually it's going to bite you. And when it does, it's not good. So let's talk about your contracts and how you keep your company safe while you're expanding. Yeah, I wish I could say that I love doing the contracts, but uh, that's one of the business sides of things as far as like heavy administrative work. I don't totally adore, but the business side of things I really do love is trying to figure out how to scale and trying to bring in new business marketing and figuring out where I can invest. But as far as contracts go, I'm trying to get better about doing it for every client. Uh, there's a lot of clients who I work with. When I meet with them, I know that I'm not going to have an issue. Or if they're a repeat client, I won't do as elaborate of a contract with them as I would opposed to if I'm working with a commercial client. Commercial clients uh, hire and think sometimes they need to have a contract. Sometimes it's just it's just helpful to protect you in certain ways and have little disclaimers in there about what it looks like if you know you build a piece of furniture and they don't have the space for it that you're not going to you know take care of storing it for three months or six months or whatever it is so things like that my commercial contract kind of grows a little bit over time and then my one with clients mostly just has things i'll outline the dimensions and the style of the piece of furniture and the products i'm using to finish it things like that and um, the materials involved anything along those lines and then I'll, I have just have some basic information around the end of it as far as if, you know, if this is stored in an improper climate or whatever, that, you know, I won't be responsible for any damage caused to the table after delivery or won't be responsible for certain types of damage. But I do put some things in there as far as if there are issues with this within 30 days, then I will help out. Like if I build a tabletop and it cups, and truly it has been taken care of within the first 30 days, um, I feel responsible for that and I should probably fix it. So that helps them feel more comfortable too, which is important. But yeah, like I said, it's it's a little bit different for commercial clients opposed to just regular homeowners for a dining table going in their house. So I took a bunch of reference contracts that I'd seen online and took scenarios that I'd experienced in the past and issues that I've ran into and outlined that in my contract template for different people. So especially if you're shipping furniture, it's also important, definitely important to have a contract so that you can outline who's responsible for what if something gets damaged in transit. Um, but if everything's kept local, it can be a little more, I think it can be a little more brief. You don't want to scare people away thinking that 
if there's any issue at all, then they're totally responsible for it. But you should take responsibility for things that are that can be damaged within your control. And I think um, there's things that can happen to the piece of furniture you build within their control that they should also be responsible for. So, and then I just have everybody sign something through DocuSign. It's quick and easy. Yeah, and that's been that's been good, especially with higher end clients. Helping helping them feel comfortable doing business with me is very important. And trying to get that that to them within a reasonable amount of time helps helps that business come back after time too. So, yeah, it's it's a learning process and I don't know if anybody ever has a perfect contract for furniture, uh, but if they do, please send it to me because I would love to see it. That's true. Well, yeah, if somebody out there does have a perfect contract, I'm sure we would all love to see it because it would save a lot of headaches. And it's true, it does take a special type of person to love all the mundane office type work, like writing up contracts and things like that. So maybe you don't love that part, but you understand that part comes with the territory of owning a business. Absolutely. And I try to put myself in an environment where I can enjoy it a little more. Like I'll set aside, you know, every Friday morning, I'll go to my favorite coffee shop and sit down and knock out a contract or two, not be completely miserable when I do it, but it also forces me to get it done. Otherwise I'll keep pushing it off to the side. Well, you have to think the more contracts you write up, the more pieces of furniture you're selling. It's not something that should be painful. It should be joyous. You should be happy to have to write up another contract for a new client or make up new pricing. You should say, maybe this isn't the exact reason I got into the business, but making money and selling things is the way my business is sustaining itself. Yep, absolutely. And I, whenever I'm doing them, I'm thinking, one of these days, I will have somebody who does this for me. So I just got to deal with it right now. There you go. Now, there are a lot of people out there who are listening to this and they want to get into the furniture business. They have not been scared off by the horror stories that people have told of owning their own business and especially owning their own furniture business. And they want to become full-time furniture makers like you are. And there are also people who have been doing this for a long time, who love the idea of furniture, but don't feel like they're getting everything they can out of their business. For those people listening, what advice could you share from your own experience, from the business side to the building side? For those of you who are trying to decide if you want to go into this full-time and build furniture full-time, um, just know that it is really important to have what it takes to just handle the business side of it. And that is going to take up a decent amount of your time. You can't only build furniture. You have to do some marketing most likely. I mean, marketing, I mean, don't like, you don't have to spend thousands of dollars on a marketing agency, but you have to market yourself to people. You have to talk about your business, show pictures of your furniture, do some small things that can help business coming in and get a little creative, at least starting off. And then over time, the business will start happening more organically if you're creating good products and if you're treating your clients well. So um, it's not, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, Ethan, it's, it's not all fun and games, but the freedom you can get from it and what it can allow you to do is totally worth it. In my opinion. I mean, I get to 
build awesome furniture for awesome clients all the time in an amazing shop and um, continue to just build the business. And for me, having external goals was one of the most important things too, where for me to quit my job, my sure thing, nine to five job, uh, where I had a steady paycheck to doing this full time was something that I thought, you know, this will free me up to take control of my schedule, spend more time with my family. If I've got friends who want to grab lunch on a whim at noon in the middle of the day, I get to do that. Or if my daughter's sick and I need to help take care of something at home, I don't have to worry about talking to my boss or if I want to go grab lunch with my wife, all these, all these things where my external goal was, I want to be a better dad. I want to be a better husband. I want to spend more time with my friends and be able to have control over when I get to do that. That came at a price, obviously, where I have more stress with certain things. I have more responsibility at the end of the day, and I have to continue getting creative to bring business in to be able to keep money coming into the house. But the payoff for me was all the freedoms I have in getting to do the things I enjoy more often. And there's there's a time window which you have to make bigger sacrifices, and you might not get to do that for the first few months or full time. But after a while, you'll eventually be able to do those things and take back full control of what you're wanting to do and not let the business rule your life. So yeah, I think keeping keeping those external goals in mind uh, as you're getting into it is super important because if you're a workaholic at the very beginning or going into being a full-time business owner, that's probably not going to change. So yeah, keep keep other goals at the forefront of your mind. Make sure you're doing those things. If you get into business so that you can be at home at five o'clock every day, you need to keep doing those things or else the business will rule your life. And it's hard when you know you can stay and make a little bit of extra cash or things like that. But if you're able to get home, if you're able to spend that time with your friends or family or do the things you enjoy the most, whatever the heck those things are for you, um, do those things throughout the process and, and just enjoy it. Yeah, it's risky, it's scary, but it's fun and um, don't jump into it too early. If you're only selling, if you're trying to go full-time and you're selling two cutting boards a month, you probably shouldn't do it yet. You should probably keep growing the side hustle a little bit um, until you can make enough or you, at least you have enough in savings from your other job for, you know, three to six months to be able to pay for what you need. So um, I think it's important to take somewhat of a calculated risk. Don't mess up your family by jumping in too early. Yeah, just enjoy the process. It's fun, it's rewarding. Ride the highs and learn from the lows. Ride the highs and learn from the lows. Those are very true words and something that we should all keep in mind, whether we own our own business or not. It's a journey and you'll change your mind a lot on which direction you'll want to go, but try to make a decision at some point and stick to it. Um, and then if you learn, like, let's say you're building cabinets and you all of a sudden realize after six months, you hate building cabinets, you should figure out a way to stop building cabinets and build furniture. So you can't make those shifts too quickly, but you've got to, you know, if, if you don't even decide those things ever, or if you don't ever make those goals, you'll, you'll never reach them. So I'm a big goal setter. I'm a big person that's focused on direction and those are just things I believe are important for a successful business. So yeah, I try to keep those in mind and keep them written down and check on them every once in a while or 
reevaluate those things with friends to see how I'm doing and where the business is going and um, try to re redirect if necessary. It is a journey. And I want to thank you for sharing your journey with us. I want to thank you for sharing your goals and how you've reached them and hopefully helping a lot of people reach their own goals from what you've shared. So thank you very much. And I appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks, man. Anybody who wants to talk, I'm always happy to talk business or social media or whatever it is. Just feel free to reach out. There you go. Thanks again. Thanks, man. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.